uh, the Torah T this week on the portion of Mishpatim. And as usual, we are going to cover a little point from the two talks of the Rebbe in the volume 16. One of them is Mishpatim 1, and then we'll do volume 16, Mishpatim 2. There happens to be five in volume 16. So we're going to do one and two. We're going to do a small review, okay? So the first one starts with the very beginning of the Parsha. So let's just read in the uh, beginning of the Parsha. We'll talk about the three categories of laws of the Torah. In the Torah we find three categories of laws, and one of them is called Mishpatim. The Torah begins this week's portion. Ve'ele ha-mishpatim. And these are the laws. Asher tasim lifnehem. That you shall place before them. This is God saying to Moshe, Rabbeinu, when he was on Mount Sinai, Hashem says to him, and these are the laws that you shall place before them. What does it mean, and these are the laws? And usually is coming to add, as Rashi explains over here, if it's without a vav, if it says like, Elaha Mishpati would mean these, excluding the others. But Ve'ela means, and these, meaning this is in additional to the earlier ones. Yeah, we learned in the previous portion, in the portion of Yisro, we learned about Moshe Rabbeinu receiving the Torah, he went up to Mount Sinai, he got the Torah from Hashem, and we, 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 we read about the ten... Aseret Hadibrot, we read about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings of Hashem. And then this week's portion begins, following this, begins right away. And God is telling him, these are the Mishpatim. So, when you read our section in the Torah, most of the laws there are called Mishpatim. Mishpatim would refer to those laws which are logical rules. Mishpatim equals logical rules. So what does it mean, logical rules? Those means laws that make sense. So as for example, let's take an example of logical uh, rules. The Torah talks about not stealing. That's a logical rule. We know that one should not steal. It doesn't make any logical sense to go and steal something from another person. It's a logical rule why we must not do that. Uh, Why we must not uh, do damage to another person. We can't hurt the other person. Those are all logical uh, laws. Many of the laws that follow in this parsha are mishpatim. They are logical rules. What is the other category? So that's one of the categories. The other categories would be edus or edot. Edus are like testimonials. Like, for example, Shabbat. Why do we observe Shabbat? Shabbat is not a logical mitzvah. It's not a logical rule. I mean, if God did not write in the Torah, you should keep the Shabbat, then a person would not come up on their own and say, oh, uh, we must keep the Shabbat. The Shabbat remembers and celebrates, commemorates something that took place a long time ago, such as God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. 
So therefore, we have a mitzvah, we have a command to keep the Shabbos as a testimonial, as a remembrance, as a testimony. That's called an edus, like a testimony. This is to remember something. Another example, we're coming up to Purim and Pesach. Uh, Purim remembers the miracle of God's salvation, saving us from Haman, from annihilation. So these are not a logical rules. Those are, again, those are testimonials. It doesn't conflict with our intellect. There is no, we don't have objection, but we would not do it unless the Megillah said that, you know, you should celebrate the days of Purim, you should read the Megillah on Purim. Same thing goes for Pesach. Why do we have Passover? Passover remembers. What does it remember? The exodus of Egypt. So basically it's also an edus, it's a testimonial, it reminds us and we celebrate it because to remember a certain event. So that's the category, what we call edus. And then the third category will be called chukim. Chukim are statues. They are non-rational rules. Why do we need to do this? We don't know and logically we don't agree to do them because it's not something which is based on reason. It's not based on a person's idea. A person would not come up with this idea and uh, have uh, an idea to do that. As for example, uh, eating kosher. So let's say kosher food. Kosher food, we don't, I mean, some people say that kosher has to do with health, with uh, diseases, but those are secondary, those are not the real reasons. The Torah says that in order for something to be kosher, if it's meat, it has to come from only animals that chewed their cud and have split hooves. You also have to slaughter it in a very specific way. You have to salt it, you have to prepare it, and you have to extract the blood. There is a whole process. Now, somebody's going to ask, why? It doesn't have, there is no... If the Torah did not tell us, oh, you must eat kosher, then we, on our own, would not conclude that we have to eat kosher, because kosher is not a logical mitzvah. Now, notice that our parsha is called mishpatim. Basically, one would anticipate, one would anticipate that this portion will be discussing rational, logical, sensible ideas that we can agree to, that it makes sense to us, and that's why they are mishpatim. And yet, as we will see, yet as we will see, that within this parsha, there is also some illogical parts. And the question is, uh, why do we also have these illogical parts uh, as part of the Mishpatim? We'll see that some of the mitzvot in the parsha are not logical. But first, Let's have a little bit examples of chukim in the parasha. Even though the heading of this parasha seems to be these are the mishpatim, these are the logical rules, one of the things we find in this parasha, it's very interesting, I don't know if you paid attention to this, but while the main story of Matan Torah when Hashem gave us the Torah and all the preparation, is all in the last week's Parsha, in the Parshat Yitro. But yet, there is a chunk 
that is missing over there, and that gets filled in by a piece in the end of our parasha, in the end of Mishpatim. There is actually a, looks like a little disorganization over here in the presentation. The Torah presents a lot that took place as the Jews were preparing to receive the Torah, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. And then in our parasha, it goes back. Anyways, that's Rashi's commentary. There is other commentaries as well. But that's the way Rashi learns it, that we fill in the gaps and we fill in some of the story at the end of our parasha. Rashi says there is no earlier or later in the Torah, so it's okay. So one of the stories that is written, in that the Torah talks about, is that when Moshe Rabbeinu presented the Torah to the Jewish people, what, this, what was the response of the Jewish people? They said, Now, what does it mean, First, they said, we will obey. We will listen. We will do whatever Hashem tells us to do, we will do. And then it says, V'nishma. And then we'll understand. First we commit, no matter what, we're going to do it. And then we will listen and hear what we need to do, how we need to do it, explanation. But first thing they said, Naseh, we shall do, and then we will listen. Now, this is an expression not of logic. This is an expression of acceptance, saying, I will do it no matter what. So this is na'aseh, let me, I'll, we'll do it, and then we will listen. This is not a logical approach. You know, in the Talmud, actually, one of the people was teasing the rabbi, and he was saying to the rabbi, you are a very hasty people, you're a hasty nation, impulsive, you are an impulsive people, you don't think things through, but you react and you act impulsively, irrationally, why? Because he says, look how you responded to God when he offered the Torah to you, you said, we will do. How do you know that you can do it before knowing what there is to do? How could you just commit to something before you know? It's irrational, nase, to say we will do without knowing what there is to do, and then we will hear what there is to do. That doesn't really sit well. So what does this mean? So what it means is that uh, what it means is that actually this is not a connection to Hashem in which we say, okay, let's first understand, like the mishpatim that we're talking about, like the logic. This isn't a logical connection. This is really just a acceptance which is beyond the rationale. Now, this is all part of the Parsha of Mishpatim. So somehow this tells us that even the Mishpatim, they too have to be on a level of irrational. We're gonna, the Rebbe is going to explain that. But let's first uh, give another example. In the Torah, in this week's portion, we also find another prohibition. That prohibition is Lo Tevashel Gidi Bachalev Imo. Basically, one is not permitted to cook the kid, the goat kid, in its mother's milk. Basically, 
This is the prohibition against mixing milk and meat, dairy and meat, uh, against mixing it. Now, like I mentioned earlier, mixing milk and meat is not a rational mitzvah. It's not a logical, what's the reason? Why can't I mix milk with meat? It doesn't seem to have a logical reason. So one would categorize, where would you put this mitzvah of lo tevashel gidi bechalevi mo, not to cook the kid goat in its mother's milk. You would probably put it into the category of chukim. Those are statues. But yet, we find it in the Torah under the heading of mishpatim, which is all the laws that are logical laws. So somehow we see that even the logical laws, we will see that there is a certain order and we know that there is two ways of serving Hashem. Sometimes we can serve Hashem with logic. People study. They figure things out. They learn. They learn about Hashem. They learn about creation. They learn about nature. They're fascinated. I mean, look at this immune system that Hashem created each and every one of us that once the immune system meets up with an enemy, with a virus, and it develops antibodies, it remembers that virus, and as soon as the virus wants to attack again, the person immune system sends out those forces to destroy all the negative viruses. So people learn about uh, this fascinating creation of Hashem, just one one little tiny part of an immune system, and they come up with saying, hey, you know what, there's some something here which is much larger than than the person that created all this. This is like so fascinating. People study the Kabbalah. People study Hasidut. People study the Talmud. And the more you study, the more you get excited, the more you get fascinated, the more sense it makes, the more you understand, the more you realize, the more you can see, the more you can comprehend. So there is a level of servicing Hashem with logic, with intellect, with meaning, with feeling what you learned, with understanding. But there is also another level of serving Hashem, not with what we understand, but with our belief, with our full trust and commitment and unyielding, unshakable faith and amuna in Hashem. If somebody was to examine and say, what was the main purpose of the Torah when Hashem gave us the Torah? So some of the logical laws we would have figured out on our own, maybe. We have, we have a society, uh, and if we are lucky to live in a decent society, in a justice society, in a, uh, uh, a government that is considered to be uh, fair and opportunities for everyone, uh, we also come up with laws. You know, those are logical laws. Matan Torah 
the giving of the Torah wasn't just an explanation of laws, but it was sort of a connection. We had an experience. You know, we had an experience. The whole Matan Torah was an experience in which we became connected to Hashem, not just through the logic. We became connected to Hashem in a more deeper way. Just to, by the way, note, you know that the Torah uses a little bit of a strange language. It says the Jewish people stood beneath the mountain. So in the literal sense, it means at the foot of the mountain. The Torah calls it beneath the mountain, but it doesn't mean really underneath the mountain, but what it means is they stood at the foot of the mountain, the bottom of the mountain, the bottom of Mount Sinai. But our sages make a comment over here, and they say, no, no, no. It actually means literally that the Jewish people stood literally under the mountain because God picked up, uprooted the mountain, and he put it over the 600,000, couple of million people that were there, and he told them, that's what it says in the Midrash, if you are going to accept the Torah and the mitzvot, fine. Otherwise, I'm dropping the mountain. <laughs> dropping the mountain right over your heads. So, in essence, the Jewish people didn't have any choice. You know, they were forced. What were they going to do? If they didn't want to die, they had to accept. So, no wonder they said, Nasev and Ishma, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you're holding the mountain over their heads. So they said, we will do. Which, by the way, Purim is coming up. We already are almost by Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is going to be on Friday. Rosh Chodesh Adar, which is the festival, the month which is the festival of Purim. So actually, in the Megillah, we said that the Jewish people at the time, when they were threatened with annihilation by Haman and his people over there, it says the Jewish people re-accepted the Torah. Why did they have to re-accept the Torah? Because since the Jewish people had an argument that they didn't really willingly accept the Torah. They were threatened. Their lives were threatened. So therefore, that acceptance, when they said, let us listen, let us do, we'll listen and do, is not valid. Because it's like forcing someone to say, holding a gun to their head, and you're forcing them, you're saying, okay, do as I tell you, and you're afraid. You don't want to get shot, so you do what they tell you. So, the Jewish people on Purim, because they were once again determined, and they accepted upon themselves Hashem and the Torah, and over there nobody forced them. Because Haman, if they wanted to change their religion and not keep the Torah, they had that choice. And yet the Jewish people stood with totally self-sacrifice the entire year and did not bow to Haman and not give in. So this is a... uh, nullifies the previous disclaimer because there was a disclaimer that the Jews didn't willingly accept it. But now, they re-established again that which they have accepted upon themselves. But in the Hasidic interpretation, it explains what does it mean that Hashem held the mountain over their head. The mountain represents a tremendous level of love. They experience an unnatural and an unprepared affection and love to Hashem, which they never had experienced before. It doesn't really mean they were forced by the threat of being killed. No, what it means is they were forced basically because they were able to experience 
such a deep and such a beautiful level of connection to Hashem, so they basically were forced, they didn't have a choice. This was so good. This was so profound, so powerful. They loved it so much that, you know what? Nasim and Ishma, we love this, but this wasn't really the level they were at at their own. It was a mountain over their head. It was like from above, Hashem gave them that, you know, that great uh, flow and increase of, 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 of experience of love that they, it's, so to speak, they had no choice. But the point what we want to bring out over here is that was mostly Matan Torah was an experience. It was mostly an subconscious and an emotionally it was a connection it was a special relationship that was created deep in their subconscious deep in their souls they became part and eternity for eternity a people of Hashem connected with Hashem in, in at Matan Torah so, that was the main thing of Matan Torah. So basically, it's the two ways of service of Hashem. Should you serve Hashem in a way of logic, understanding, accepting things based on your conviction, you are... Uh, proven things, you have evidence, or you do things because you feel an inner pull, an inner connection. You feel tied to Hashem. You feel somehow you and Hashem are really one. And it's not based on any reason. That was merely, that was the mostly the experience of the Torah that was given to them, it was mostly the experience, the deep, above their conscious level in which they connected with Hashem. But yet, shortly thereafter, we say, Eilah Mishpatim. Because after the Torah is given, which Basically, what we do, we can't wait before to say, before we are going to start to do the mitzvot, we want to first be convinced that this is correct. And as long as we don't have the evidence, as long as we don't have proof, then... I'm not going to commit myself. No, we can't do that. Because we can't base everything just on logic. We know that logic, the intellect, changes. People have different ideas, different times. It has to be based on amuna, on belief, on a deep connection of belonging to Hashem, believing in Hashem as the basis, as the cornerstone, as the foundation of everything else. But then, you can't stop there. You can't stop just by your amuna, And you can't say, I believe in Hashem, and that's all. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to try to figure out because I believe in Hashem and that's sufficient. No. After Matan Torah comes Eilah HaMishpatim, comes the logical, which basically means that things that you believe start to make sense to you. So, if you're only believing in something, it doesn't necessarily impact you. But we want you to start believing to the extent 
that what you believe becomes down actually that it's almost like your understanding. So even when you're doing uh, mitzvahs, while they're based on your belief in Hashem, why am I doing it? Because Hashem said to do so, and I believe Hashem, I believe the Torah, I believe in God, but yet we need your entire being to be invested in it. We want you to try to comprehend what you can. We want you to try to feel as much as you can. We want you to be all of your entire organs, all of your entire powers, your talents, everything should be invested in the service of Hashem. So after Matan Torah, we come to Mishpatim. After Matan Torah, we come to Mishpatim. That means to take the things that are beyond the intellect and bring them down into the intellect later. You know, a lot of times there are certain halachot, certain laws that we don't understand. They don't make sense to us. You know, people have questions. We were learning the other day and uh, somebody raised the questions. You know, why did we have to kill all the paros? Uh, we say the best of the Egyptian uh, you shall uh, kill. Why did we kill them? Somebody asked the question, why do we kill the Amalekim? Uh, you know, we have a lot of the laws, we don't understand the reason for them. So just because we don't understand doesn't mean that we disagree. We know that we don't understand. And we we know that we have a little a limited capacity and we're not, not going to accept things that we don't understand. But on the other hand, we don't just want to accept things. We want to study. We want to try to figure out, why should we kill the Amaleki? Why should we kill the Pharaoh? What's the sense? What's the rational? Why? Because we want that mitzvah to actually also make sense to you. So it also incorporates into your intellect, into your being. So, it's a process. So the process starts off, we start off with Amuna, with our unshakable, unmovable Amuna, trust, and believe in Hashem. The fact that we are part of the Jewish people, we have the inherent belief in Hashem. As you see, when Moshe Rabbeinu was uh, conversing with Hashem, Hashem is telling him to go and take the people out of Egypt. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's argument? He says, they're not going to listen to me. They're saying, who's Hashem? Who said they're not going to listen? And Hashem told him, they will. The Jewish people are maminim, Bnei Maminim. They are believers, the son of believers. They will believe you. So, on the contrary, God punished him that his hand became like uh, leprosy when he pulled it out of his uh, bosom from his pocket because he spoke Lashon Hara. He said bad about that they're not going to believe me. What do you mean they're not going to believe you? Of course they're going to believe you. Jewish people have that inherent belief in Hashem, in Hashem and His Torah. So, we have the belief. But then, we don't want you just to remain with the belief. We want that belief to come down, you experience Mount Sinai, you experience the belief in Hashem, you're elevated, you're on a very high spiritual level. Then, go down to the Mishpatim. Go ahead and learn the laws understand them, put your logic, invest yourself in it, take the time, try to figure things out, and study. But, and once you do that, and once you do that, then something strange happens. Then what happens is that even those laws which are not logical, like the laws of Kashrut, not to cook, they also become logical all of a sudden. Because 
once you've moved from step, so basically there's A, B, and C. Step number A is to base everything in Amunah and Hashem. Step number B is to bring down not only in Amunah, but also to bring it in logic. That's step number B, Elam Mishpatim. But step number C is that at that point, once you've accepted it in a higher than logic way, and you've learned the logic of it, then even the things, those mitzvahs that seem to not make sense, they too become all of a sudden logical. They make sense to you. They all of a sudden, even those chokim, become part of the mishpatim. Even the nasim and ishma, even those parts which seem to be beyond the reason, beyond the rationale, they also start making sense to you. And, you know, a lot of times we find people who really, things make sense to them. Which means sometimes we have questions, sometimes we have things that bother us, sometimes we're not sure about things. But then we see other people, like when, you know, you see, I used to watch, like, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I used to watch him, you know, and I used to see him, and I really... And together with the Rebbe's extensive, unparalleled knowledge in Torah, in general studies, and in, in wisdom, and yet the Rebbe's simple belief in Hashem, it made sense to him. It was, there was no wavering, and there was no if, buts, and, and there was no hesitation. It was with absolute, as we read in every letter that we read from the Rebbe, for example, the Rebbe, to the Rebbe, the Torah's uh, guidance, the Torah's promises, the Torah's attitude, the Torah's look on life is unquestionable. It's not a question that is sometimes right, sometimes wrong, maybe right, maybe wrong. It is absolutely 100% always makes sense, but it doesn't make sense because to the Rebbe, the illogical becomes logical. It makes sense. He sees them. That's the level. After you have mastered, first you base it on Amuna. And after the Amuna, you go to the logic. After you've based it on the logic, then everything, also those ideas that are beyond logic, start making perfect sense. And, you know, it's just all of a sudden. Everything makes sense. I told you in the past, I had this individual, for a long time he would never come to shul. And occasionally when I'd ask him, why don't you come to shul, why don't you put on tefillin sometimes, I used to nudge him, he always would tell me, oh, I don't believe it, I don't, it doesn't make sense, you know, I have questions, this, that, always. Over time, he sort of came around and he started coming to show. Matter of fact, he became a regular. And he started putting on tefillin all the time. And he's. Uh... And one time I asked him, there's a lot of people like that, but I'm talking about one individual I'm talking about who had this conversation with. So one time I asked him, uh, Mr. So and so, he says, I want to ask you a question. I'm so very happy that you come to shul. You put on tefillin, you daven every day. I'm thrilled. But tell me, honestly, all your questions have been answered. <laughs> I mean, you're always telling me that you know you have problems, you have questions, you're not sure, and you know you have you know you have issues. He says, I said to him, Did you now that you're coming to shul, that means that you have all your questions are answers. He says, No. It just feels right. He says, you know, at the end of the day, he says, I may not understand it logically, but he says, it's just, it, it's just in my gut, you know, it's just something that I feel 
this is where it really is. I can't explain it, and I can't, you know, articulate. I don't know why, but it just makes sense. So the chukim remain chukim. Nasev and Nishma is illogical, but they become part of Mishpatim. You don't look at them anymore as just as law. They're not anymore Mishpatim. They are not, they are not anymore foreign to you. You accept and you appreciate them as if they were logical. And, um, you know, you see, the more you do things, the more they start making sense to you. You know, even if even if you don't know the answer, if somebody asks you a question, you know, sometimes the way to answer is a question is, you know, there's a story told about one of the uh, Chassids, the followers of the third Lubavitch Rebbe. He was a very uh, renowned Chassid, a very great scholar. He was an intellectual, he was a it was a scholar it was a very uh, distinguished individual and he one time came in for a private meeting with the Tzemach Tzedek and he said to the Tzemach Tzedek he said to the Rebbe, the, the third Rebbe he says, you know I, I'm embarrassed to say but I do have some questions you know, about belief, about Hashem, you know, whatever. Is it okay, Rebbe, to present to you my questions, my, my, my problems? The Rebbe says, of course, go ahead. And being a very articulate and a very bright person, he was able to bring out his question in a very, very beautiful way and he seemed like he stumped the Rebbe the Rebbe and the Rebbe was sitting like with his hands over his head his head head and listening attentively to him and without responding and so while he was explaining and explaining the Rebbe was still listening to him the whole time the Rebbe didn't answer anything and the Chassid got very scared. You know, he says, Rebbe, he says, Rabbi, you also don't know the answer to these questions? And the Rebbe says, Aha, I was waiting to hear that. In other words, even while you're asking those questions, you know they're only questions. You know that there's answers to those questions. That those questions are just on the surface, but deep down, you know that there's somebody there that knows the answers, that those questions do have an answer to them. It's only that you don't know the answer to them, but that doesn't mean that there is no answers to them. And the same thing is by us, a lot of times, you know, when we have questions, it doesn't mean that there's no answers. All what it means is uh, we know, we don't always know, understand the answers. Uh, my wife says, the Rebetzin says many times, she says, if it was good enough for the Rebbe, it's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to be smarter than the Rebbe. If it was good enough for the Rebbe, then it's good enough for me. Anyways, so that's the uh, review from the first Sikha. And let's go ahead and do quickly a little bit of the second part. So, uh, the second part uh, is the second Mishpat. It talks a little, one of those laws that maybe we don't want to uh, talk about so much, very the beginning of the portion. It talks about a Hebrew slave. When you purchase a Hebrew slave, that's the very first. See, Pasuk Beis talks about Kisikne Eved Ivri. When you purchase a Hebrew slave, then the Torah says, 
Sheish Shonim Yavod. For six years he shall serve you. Uvashviis, and on the seventh year, Yeitzei Lachavshi Chinom. He should go out free. Without any pay, he goes free. You know, a lot of us feel like sometimes, like this Eved Ivri, like this slave, like the Hebrew slave, or maybe like woman slaves, you know, we're always enslaved, you know, six days a week, we are busy, we're always uh, trying to catch up, always playing catch up. And we're always trying to make sure that we have enough to pay the bills and enough to uh, provide for ourselves and to save something for our old age. Uh, We all try to do that. And we're always, so instead of the six years, six days a week, we're always running. And in a way, it's a slavery because there are so many obligations and bills to pay. And, you know, as much money as we try to bring in, we're always, you know, feeling that we had a brother enough. There is just so much. Um, my father may rest in peace, used to say, it's not how much money you make, but it's how much money you can hold on after you pay all the bills. (laughs) Because if you made a million dollars and you spent a million and one, then you've lost money. (laughs) You haven't made anything. So a lot of times we feel ourselves slaves to our jobs, to our uh, obligations, uh, take care of the house, take care of the kids, take care of our spouses, uh, take care of all the things that come our way. It sounds like, and lately we have even other slavery. We, Many of us are enslaved to our electronic devices. We get up in the middle of the night, we have to check, uh, you know, what's the latest news or... Uh, did they impeach Trump or did they not impeach Trump? Did they? <laughs> who, who, everybody is always, we don't have any peace of mind. We're like slaves. We're like slaves. We are leashed to our electronic uh, gadgets that we're always haunting us and they're always with us, you know. You know, the rabbi, I have an excuse. I make dominion. I have to have my phone by me. But look at the show. Everybody in the shul, they're sitting, davening to Hashem. Take a break, leave your phone outside in your pocket and daven, and then you'll go back to, no, no. Everybody is, you know, what are you going to miss over there, you know? <laughs> you know, but we're, we're enslaved. And that's why it's so beautiful when it comes to the seventh day, when it comes Shabbos. You know, some people never, uh, never heard about Shabbos, don't know what it means to really relax and not to have to worry about anything. As the halacha says, that when it comes Shabbos, is as if everything has been done, which is not really true. People still have in the middle of a deal, in the middle of work, in the middle of uh, negotiations, but when it comes Shabbos, you close down all your gadgets, you close down all your electronics, you close down all your worries, and we go out free. On the seventh day, Bashviz, we go out free. So in any event, it talks about here, but literally, we talk about a Hebrew slave. A Hebrew slave has to work for six years. Now, by the way, I think I've mentioned it in the past, a Hebrew slave that one has becomes a really a pain for the master because the Torah requires very special treatment of this slave, the Hebrew slave. You can't just 
degrade him, you can't give him to do work, be disrespectful to him, you must take very good care of him. Actually, you must take care of him even better than yourself. He comes even before you. So the Talmud says, what happens? You have a slave. You have a Hebrew slave. And you have one pillow. Only one pillow. Who gets to sleep with the pillow? The master or the slave? So the law is, the law is the slave gets to use the pillow. That's how much we must take care of the slave. He comes before you. So the rabbi asked the question, but I don't understand. Okay, we must treat the, the slave with respect, everything, yes. But why does he come before me? Why do I have to give him away my one pillow? Why does he get the, 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 the pillow? And the rabbi answered, the answer is, if all that you have is one pillow, why are you buying a slave? <laughs> Don't buy a slave if you have one pillow. If you're going to buy a slave, you're going to give it to him? Make sure not to buy it. But in any event, he has to be treated very well. Now, how could there be a Hebrew slave? There's one of two scenarios, Rashi says, one of two scenarios like a Hebrew slave. One scenario is brought down in the Chumash later on. Over there, it talks about in the Pasuk, in Yikra, in the book of Yikra, over there it talks about a, 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 a Jewish person who has become very poor and he can't afford food and everything else, so he hires himself out as a slave as a servant to a master and the master takes care of him and he works for him and the other scenario would be if a person uh, should uh, let's say steal something from another person and then we're going to learn later on the Parsha if you steal sometimes you have to pay double double the value what you stole as a punishment sometimes actually you have to pay four or five times the value. If you stole a sheep or an ox, you have to pay four and five times of the sheep and five times of the ox. You have to pay back. That's a lot of money sometimes for stealing something. So what happens if you don't have the money to pay back? So based it, the court will sell you to the person for to pay the bills. These are the two scenarios. Okay? Now, at this particular point, when the Jewish people came from Matan Torah, they had just left Egypt. Now, we all know when the Jewish people left Egypt, they weren't short of cash over there. They weren't short of money. It says that they went during the darkness the Jewish people went into the older homes of the Egyptians and they saw all their wealth and all the good things that they have over there. And when they came, at the end, they wanted to borrow their stuff. They said, we don't have it. They say, yeah, yeah. We know the silver dishes you have in the china closet and we know the gold you have hidden in the safe. We saw everything we saw. They gave them everything. And then eventually, when they chased them by the sea and Hashem split the sea, it says that this spoil that they came out after the uh, spilling of the sea and the drowning of all the Egyptians, it says there was more spoil there than all the spoil they took out. And it says that Moshe Rabbeinu had to chase them away. They just, people were collecting more and more. It says every person had no less than 60 donkeys. I don't remember the number of their Donkeys laden with all kinds of stuff. So people were wealthy at the time. And don't forget, we talked about it before. Uh, this was in the desert. They didn't have any expensive, no bills, no heating bills, and no electricity bills. Uh, they didn't have to wash their laundry. It's, uh, it was washed upon them. And 
no food bills because they didn't have to get from the Shela house in uh, in Boston. They they had uh, everything uh, provided. The manna came to them from the heaven and the water, and they can taste anything. They wanted ice cream, and they wanted uh, chocolate, whatever they wanted. They had it all right over there. So they had everything they wanted, no cost for them. So how are we going to have a Jewish person selling himself for a slave? It can't be because they're poor. Anyways, we're not talking about that over here. Here we're talking about Bezdin sells him. Why? Because he stole. And he doesn't have no money to pay. How could there be such a thing that a person doesn't have enough money to pay? And the answer is actually... This doesn't apply. At that point, it didn't apply. It didn't apply then, this halacha. So the question is, why does the Torah start, the very first law, talking about something which is not really applicable at that time? It wasn't then. It wasn't possible. There was no such a thing as a Hebrew slave at the time. And unfortunately, we run out of time, but the Rebbe explains that Actually, by this mitzvah, we're going to read the next passage. What happens if the slave says after six years, Oh, I love my master. I don't want to go out free. I want to stay here. Then his master will take him and drill the lobe of his ear by the door. Why are we drilling the lobe of the ear? Because you heard... Hashem said on Mount Sinai, don't steal and you stole, that ear should be drilled. Or if you sold yourself, Hashem told on Mount Sinai, the Jewish people are my servants. And you went and became a servant of another person, we drill your ear. So over here we see the connection between the punishment with the Har Sinai, and that's why the Torah brought it over here. Unfortunately, we ran out of time, so we got just a little bit of the points of here. So we discussed the things of serving Hashem, logical serving Hashem with the Muna, and even the illogical things become logical to you after a while, you know, even though they just make, I just, you know, that's just the way it, 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 it starts making sense to you. And we also learn about, to remember, even if we're slaves for six days a week or six Years We have to always remember, get our freedom on the seventh day. Celebrate the Shabbos. If you celebrate the Shabbos, the Shabbos will be there to protect you and you will be able to really enjoy the other six days of the week because they will be inspired from your day of Shabbos. So perhaps they'll bring, within the chaos of the weekday, you will still be able to enjoy all the gifts that Hashem has blessed us all. So, till next week, I want to wish everybody a good week, and hope Thank to see you. everybody. Anybody would like to come and say something? Uh, yes, please. Rabbi. Sure. Um, so, in the case of stealing a sheep, uh, for example, right? Um, you had said that was, uh, I think, for four, um, yes. four times it's worth, it has yes. to be repaid. Yes. So, what if the person is through their labor was able to repay it before the six years? Could they be released, let's okay. say, after four okay. years? You're or asking, yeah, like? you're asking very detailed questions over here. Yes, but it's not only that. There is a lot of laws here that it, the, 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 the price of his sale has to actually uh, meet up with what the cost is. We don't, there's no give backs or take back. If it if he's worth more, we may not even sell him altogether. So it's not just so simple. There's a lot of... It has to be the complete value of what he stole. If he didn't steal... I mean, I didn't go through the laws now, but there are very detailed laws. It's just the general concept that we learn over here. But for sure, he wouldn't have to stay the whole entire time over there if he, if he didn't have to pay that. But he might not even be able... They might not even be able to sell him in the first place if it's not enough value for the six years. You may not even be able to sell him. In other words, if his value of six years is $1,000 and he only owes 500 we may not be able to sell him at all. He's not going to get paid. So it's even better than your question. Yeah, it is. Okay. 
Bed of Rib. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. Thank you, Nancy, Thank you. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We something. My pleasure. By the way, uh, Heidi, I wasn't talking about your dad. It was somebody else. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't talking. I was talking about somebody else. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's no longer in Sharon. He lives in sunny Florida. No, he's in sunny Florida. Okay. Dad's Some, in somebody in else. Florida right now, and it annoys me to no end. Why? Because you're on the snow. Because he's saying, saying it's 80 degrees out, or <laughs> when it drops to 60, he's like, it's cold. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I've well, tried to hang up on him multiple times. And yeah, he doesn't stop okay. talking about the weather. All right. Maybe uh, at least if you zoom him in, maybe you can get a little bit of peak of the snow. Of the sun over there. We usually do. Or maybe a you'll be able to uh, appreciate what we do a FaceTime call once a week, the three of us. So we show uh, uh. Anyways, it says, but it's New England. They say, wait a minute. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. But we'll wait what tomorrow brings. Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right, everybody. Tomorrow. Have a great week, yeah. everybody. Thanks, Rabbi. We'll see everybody. Thank bye. 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 Bye.